So we've completed the first full day of our time together. And over the years on this Saturday night, I found that um, whatever I plan or think I want to talk about, it always seems to come back to uh, some way how to keep our hearts open in the face of difficulty. And that's very much because this Saturday, you know, when we all start facing and being with ourselves, a lot comes up. And being in the interview groups today and uh, checking in with different people, it's not all pain. It's pain and pleasure and this and that and many different weather systems, but it's not easy. So I thought tonight what I'd do is talk some about um, how we can cultivate this quality of caring presence in the face of whatever. That's kind of the, the name of the talk, <laughs> in the face of whatever. <laughs> and to begin with by saying that um, most everybody knows that the most challenging parts of our lives, the times that have been most difficult, have also been the times that um, have had us tap into the deepest strength within us, have woken us up the most, have really served us. And pretty much everybody knows that, that Um, difficulty serves us and yet when we're in the middle of it there is this amazingly quick reflex to say something's wrong I'm wrong this is wrong and like everything we know cognitively about how it can wake us up and serve us and open our hearts might be even there still cognitively but our whole body being is going "Uh uh-uh don't like something's wrong So all the wise sages go, ah, it's manure for Bodhi. You know that phrase, you know, for awakening. And we're going, don't want it, maybe another time when I'm more. (laughs) So that is the flag of dukkha, of suffering. This sense of something's wrong. This sense of it's not okay. And in the face of that, we, have a, we all have our own particular repertoire, but in some way, when it's not okay, we try to hold on to something pleasant or safe, or we try to get rid of what's unpleasant. We all revert to that. So our practice is to begin to reverse that most um, primal conditioning or reflex, and to learn to stay here, to soften, not harden, to not leave. That's our practice. But it goes against our culture and all our training. I mean, we are in a culture that worships youth and perfection and achievement and things being a certain way. It's like the only really good moon is a full moon. You know what I mean? It has to be a certain way and everything else is kind of less than. That's our culture. This is um, an essay written by a high school student in his application to college. And you know how they say, tell us something significant about your life. This is just a reflection of the culture, what he needed to write to get in. Dear friends in the admissions department, how can I describe myself? I'm a dynamic figure, often seen scaling walls and crushing ice. I've been known to remodel train stations on my lunch breaks, making them more efficient in the area of heat retention. 
I translate ethnic slurs for Cuban refugees. At times, I have written award-winning operas. I manage time efficiently. I can tread water for three days in a row. I woo women with my sensuous and godlike trombone playing. I can pilot bicycles up severe inclines with unflagging speed, and I cook 30-minute brownies in 20 minutes. I am an expert in stucco, a veteran in love, and an outlaw in Peru. I want... <laughs> I once single-handedly defended a small village in the Amazon from a horde of ferocious ants. I play bluegrass cello and was scouted by the Mets. <laughs> when I'm bored, I build large suspension bridges in my backyard and enjoy urban hand gliding. On Wednesday afternoons, after school, I repair electrical appliances free of charge. I'm an abstract artist, a concrete analyst, and a ruthless bookie. Critics worldwide swoon over my original line of corduroy evening wear. <laughs> I don't perspire. I bat 400. Children, trust me. I, <laughs> I once read Paradise Lost, Moby Dick and David Copperfield in one day and still had time to refurbish the entire dining room. I know the exact location of every food item in the supermarket and I have performed covert operations for the CIA. I sleep, but only infrequently and usually in a chair. The laws of physics do not apply to me. <laughs> I've made extraordinary four-course meals using only a toaster oven. <laughs> I've, run, I've won bullfights in San Juan, cliff diving competitions in Sri Lanka, and a spelling bees at the Kremlin. I've played Hamlet, I've performed open-heart surgery, and I've spoken with Elvis. But I've not yet gone to college. Please consider accepting me. <laughs> <laughs> So we go to all sorts of extremes to compensate for both a sense of not enough and what is expected. And there's really, really deep conditioning to feel this sense of being insufficient. So much so, the Buddha described it really as the core of our suffering, that it's based on this really at the heart delusion of who we are. We think we're separate self. If we think we're a separate self, by nature we're going to feel inadequate. Separate means not whole, means incomplete, means threatened. As long as we go around through this world, that being the fundamental filter for reality, the sense of separation, we go around feeling in some way imperfect. We can't trust life. We can't trust how it's unfolding. So out of this not good enough self, out of this sense of vulnerability, as I mentioned, we try hard. We really do. We all are trying hard. We're trying hard to compensate for that fundamental something is wrong feeling. We fix things. We arrange things. We manipulate, we control ourselves, we control each other. We compare a lot. You can see it on retreat, how much we compare. One of the wonderful things about retreat, it's called yogi mind, is what happens somewhat subtly in some situation gets blown very big when you're at retreat because you're paying more attention. So you can watch comparing mind. Hmm, I'm walking slower, you know, <laughs> or eating less, or sitting more still, or 
fidgeting and everyone else is still, it, we can go up and we can go down, but in some way we're comparing. Dana Carvey said, I'm 30 years old, but I read at the 34-year-old level. <laughs> we'll do anything to feel a little better, right? <laughs> the most basic way that we kind of defend against this sense of being inadequate and vulnerable is to blame ourselves. It's our way to try to make ourselves better, and it pushes away parts of ourselves. So we do a lot of blaming. We either point the blame in at ourselves, or we point it out at other people. But either way, there's blame that comes out of that something's wrong feeling. I have a um, cartoon from the New Yorker, and it, somewhere deep in Africa, there's a woman sitting inside her hut, and she's got this little voodoo doll with pins all in it, and her husband's standing in the entrance to the tent saying, can't you get along with anybody? <laughs> you know? And that is what we do to ourselves. I mean, we're putting pins on ourselves a lot. It happens a lot. I recently uh, led a workshop for a group of people that are working on diversity issues and different ways that people in different racial and ethnic groups judge each other. And underneath that, the self-judgment that, that sustains it. And one woman said that whenever she's really blaming herself, not being forgiving at all to herself, that she asks herself, what am I fearing? What would, I happen, what would I have to feel if I wasn't blaming myself? And I think it's a really powerful question. That if we take some area that is typical for us to be blaming ourselves about, and you can pick any one that's a common one for you, and then to ask yourself, what would I have to be experiencing if I wasn't blaming? What would I have to face? And we did this in this group, and what came out as the common theme underneath it all is, I'm imperfect. If I stop blaming, I have to feel the fear of being imperfect. And we each have that. We each carry around that fear of being imperfect. We come to retreats with it, the fear of not being perfect enough to be able to handle it or do it right. And the truth is, when we look closely, is that we not only are imperfect, but we will make mistakes. We won't do it right according to all the standards that we know about. Isn't it true? I mean, if we haven't already made mistakes, we will make mistakes. <laughs> It'll happen. <laughs> I want to make sure everybody's included in this conversation. <laughs> There's a lot of healing when we start trying to make room for imperfection. When, when it really becomes a little easier to be with our beings in their imperfect ways. My son, who's 11 years old, he's in sixth grade now, he and I sometimes uh, read these. They're really fun. These are um, answers given from children his age to different questions um, in the areas of science and also religion. You can listen to thunder and tell how close you came to getting hit. If you don't hear it, you got hit, so never mind. <laughs> 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 uh, 
Some people can tell what time it is by looking at the sun, but I've never been able to make out the numbers. <laughs> For asphyxiation, apply artificial respiration until the patient is dead. <laughs> One of the main causes of dust is janitors. <laughs> The inha inhabitants of Moscow are called mosquitoes. <laughs> a census taker is a man who goes from house to house increasing the population. <laughs> a city purifies its water supply by filtering the, air, the water and then forcing it through an aviator. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> There's more. You want to hear them? <laughs> the spinal column is a long bunch of bones. The head sits on the top and you sit on the bottom. <laughs> and there's, this is on religion. The seventh commandment is, thou shalt not admit adultery. <laughs> the, Jew <laughs> the Jews had trouble throughout their history with unsympathetic genitals. <laughs> I better stop. <laughs> These go on and on. So it helps. <laughs> so he comes back with a B minus or a B, and then we go back to reading these bloopers, and he feels better that there's, you know, there's room for error. And there is, but we aren't in the habit of making room. So our challenge in practice a lot is facing that what's wrong feeling. Facing it with humor, because it really helps to, you know, we're all fumbling around. We really are. It's a big experiment and we're tripping up a lot, right? And it's easy to admit it, you know, when I know everybody else is admitting it, you know. <laughs> yeah? It's really basic in our practice to make room with our hearts and with our awareness for how it is to be okay with that. And the Tibetans, um, have a really kind of wonderful way of putting it. It's so simple that what we consider to be poison, what we consider to be difficult, the imperfection, the striving, the greed, the anger, the fear, the poisons become medicine when we face them, when we face them with care and presence. That's our practice. Then they have a visual which is um, a description, which I heard is true, that when a peacock eats a certain kind of poison, it makes their feathers more colorful. Has anybody heard of that one? I'm looking for verification. <laughs> it's kind of a nice sounding story. The word bodhicitta, awakening heart-mind. Bodhicitta is aroused in any moment that we face what's real, that we face what's imperfect, what's been called the poison, the intensity, the weather systems. And that's we come to retreat. And really, it's an amazing thing because there's no question that when we stop running away from stuff, it's all there. And can we face it? And how do we face it? And the Buddha's basic teachings was with wise attention. He taught in a way that's been described as with two wings of the bird, the attention that's really wise understanding that we see clearly what's true, and then the other wing being that we hold it with love. 
that we see, ah, this, and that it's in some way embraced with a sincere heart. So just to look at these two wings for a few minutes, seeing clearly, which is so much of what you all have been doing today. You know, I saw it in the interview groups, very clear naming that what was coming up and what felt it was under that, and a real mindful recognition. I sometimes enjoy thinking of it in terms of the uh, Wizard of Oz story, that you know how uh, Dorothy and the gang were all kind of transfixed, the wizards there, and they're, they're thinking that there's this, you know, magical, incredible wizard, and the only one that wasn't caught up in the storyline was Toto. <laughs> right? <laughs> Didn't Topo go, yap, 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 pull aside the curtain, and lo and behold, there's this little guy just with the levers? So, in a way, this is, uh, you know, a description of what wise attention can be about, which is looking behind the curtain. And again, today, and it was very inspiring how many, you know, were willing to look and pull aside a curtain and say, ah, so this is here too. When we don't look, when we don't pay attention, it's very easy to stay on the surface of life and in pain and reactivity. We don't see when, when there's all this planning going on if we are not willing to really look to sense the anxiety, the fear sometimes is underneath planning mind. Or we can be with the breath but in some way feeling tight and not sense underneath that a sadness that we haven't really allowed ourselves to open to. It's training, it's practice to be even in the habit of looking more closely. And yet when we don't, we're excluding part of our life. It said that whatever is not included, whatever's not seen, whatever's not embraced, keeps our awareness and our heart bound. Whatever's not included keeps our heart bound. So our practice is really to start right where we are. You don't have to go on a a mission to go find something else. Just whatever, what's right now, what's happening. And to recognize, ah, this. And to open and to feel it fully. Now, here's where the challenge comes in, is that we spend so much time in thought forms. We actually believe them. You know, we believe the images and movies and thought forms and live inside them. And so we forget to look, because they're just the whole shebang. They're, what ha- they're what's happening. So a large part of practice is to begin to do this very simple process of going, ah, thinking, thinking. And it's an amazingly powerful moment, the moment that we've recognized thoughts. And some of you have been describing what it's like number, in fact, today, that in the moment of going, ah, thinking, thinking, there's a whole world that's real and alive and changing and vibrant to reconnect with. There's a tremendous amount of freedom once we wake up out of thoughts. The traditional metaphor is of an ocean with waves or a sky with clouds, and that when we'll use the sky clouds, when, when we're inside the cloud of thought, we forget the sky. We forget the boundlessness of our true nature. And it's like if you're in an airplane and you're inside a cloud, it really does seem like that's the world. And then you get through it, and there's sky and there's clouds. You're not pushing away the clouds, but they're just part of the whole, and they don't stain it. They don't diminish it. They don't make us small. 
So this practice of recognizing thought forms, the contraction of the mind to take the shape of forms, and then relaxing back is really central to, to waking up. The tools that we use, and some of you again have been using them today, the one I've been mentioning is noting, to be able to name it. Noting is more useful for some things than others, and everyone has to kind of find their own way in terms of what it works for. But with thinking, it's very, very helpful. In the moment of recognizing a thought and naming it, you're no longer quite as contracted in its shape. Does that make sense? In the moment of recognizing, you become the recognizer, the awareness that knows. So noting, and noting in a way that's gentle, that's soft. So the noting isn't like a hammer to kind of push away the thought, but rather recognition, recognition. Ah, thinking, planning, worrying, whatever it might be. To name when there's unpleasantness is helpful, our pleasantness, because we get so identified with it and react out of it, grasping when it's pleasant, pushing away when it's unpleasant. To use the noting and experiment with it. Another of the kind of practices that brings us deeper, that wakes us up more, is really staying and coming back into bodily sensations. In the moment of recognizing thinking, if you go, ah, thinking, thinking, and then open and just pause and open to the world of sensations. Relax into the world of sensations. Relax the heart a bit and open. Then there's a quality of presence and realness that can really wake up the heart and mind. It's not so easy to open fully into our bodies because our very way of avoiding pain is to disconnect from our bodies. So again, this is a practice to be patient with. Some of you know the story, I've told it in Tuesday night class a few times, of Milrepa, the Tibetan teacher who describes how he's in his cave and all the demons, these are the poisons or you know, judgment and fear and anger, are attacking and he tried every possible way of negotiating, just the way we do. You know, go away, okay, you can stay here, but don't bother me. All right, bother me, but not too much. You know, he, he tried all the gradations of, um, he even bowed to them. And they stopped bothering him when he bowed to them, but they didn't go away. It wasn't until he said, okay, eat me, <laughs> you know, go ahead, take me, you know, that they disappeared. When the resistance is gone, the suffering is gone. It's that simple. Our suffering is because we put on the armor. We try to resist. So each of us has our own brand of demons, our poisons, or hindrances, or whatever you want to call them, challenges that keep us running. For myself, as, as some of you know, especially comes clear at retreats, the biggest challenge has been physical sickness. And I've been, in the last several retreats I've gone to, I've really struggled because I've been unwell at each of them, I, especially at IMS when I was up at the three-month retreat last year. And what was really interesting was this process of looking behind the curtain. Because, you know, I'm 
I'm trained to go, oh, thinking, thinking, and then coming into my body. So I would at first resist, because who wants to be in a body that's feeling terrible? And that's real standard. And it took a while to kind of soften into my body. But then there was a whole other curtain, which had to do with a real deep fear. And the fear was around, something's wrong with me, and something's wrong with me because I'm sick. In other words, pain meant I was, something was wrong. It meant I was bad, I was insufficient, I wouldn't be sick if there wasn't something basically wrong with me as a human. And there was really deep shame and fear around that. And it wasn't until I fully opened that curtain and felt fully the, the pain and the shame and the fear of that, that there was actually a very radical freeing up. The truth is that every time we include what's there, the very act of including it allows us to open to more of a sense of wholeness and compassion. Until I could see it and feel it, I could not be kind towards myself. It had an unconscious way of flavoring everything. So this is really what we're doing, and each of us has our own brand of being willing to look behind the curtain and then open and really let ourselves experience in our bodies. And there's a real relief in a moment of connecting with what's authentically there. Now, you don't have to go searching for it. Even though I'm using this metaphor of moving a curtain and looking behind, it's not really searching. At one conference, somebody said, after a lot of digging through history, I uncovered long buried memories of a perfectly normal childhood. <laughs> we do this, we try to find things, and it's not, it's not in that spirit, it's more this willingness to be with what's there. And there are some skillful questions we can ask that aren't intellectual or cognitive. Um, for myself, the simply at any point when I'm kind of tangled saying, well, What's really asking for attention? What's asking for acceptance? And then not looking in an intellectual way, but just feeling into what's there. So there are, th- that there are questions that can be helpful. But what really matters is after we ask the question, can we pause? See, we don't pause much. We ask a question and we either tighten against it or try to dive in to pause and to soften. Stephen Levine teaches a meditation he calls soft belly meditation, and some of you probably have done it and heard of it. Um, now just saying soften the belly has become, like teachers all over use that because it's so powerful a way of kind of opening and connecting with what's there. But he does a more full meditation, which really has to do with softening the belly and then softening the heart in a way that there's really room for all experiences to float and to be and to unfold themselves in an open attention. It's very, very powerful. And it's no different than what we're doing here, to open to what's there, except for it's a kind of guided way of doing it that can really release where there's some contractions. Other ways that help, some of you know that we've, we've talked about just simply saying yes to what's there. In a way, yes is like the soft belly meditation. It creates a softness, a receptivity. It's kind of the difference when a parent encounters a child. If you're, if you're the child going to a parent with something that's really difficult, 
and having them frown and look mean and forbidding or smile and be receptive. And that's the way it is with our own vulnerability. Can we say yes? Frequently that's just simply what I'll do. If things are very tight and I'm really down on myself, anything that comes up I'll try to just soft yes to it. Yes to this. Yes to that. And just for a moment, check in and just sense where you are. Just pause. Even in the stream of these thoughts and ideas and sense what's predominant in your own body and mind and heart. And with whatever you notice, just explore, pleasant or unpleasant, yes to this, yes to whatever, softening the belly and the heart. Can you make room for what's here this moment? Wisdom or clear seeing becomes possible when we include or make room for what's there to recognize and to open. You can come back if your eyes are closed and you'd like to come back. Here's the question that comes up the most at this point, and that is, what if it feels like too much? What if what we're being asked to say yes to feels like it would be overwhelming, suffocating, like the poison would poison, not be medicine. What then? And I think it's a real question, an important one. And it pretty much comes up every time, so to speak, you know. Pema Chodron has a metaphor that she uses, which is that our ego is kind of organized like a room, and we're constantly controlling all aspects of the room, you know, keeping windows down or just open so much so so much air comes in and the temperature's a certain way and certain things on the radio and we'll let certain people in the door you know and we're always controlling all the variables so that we can experience the most safety and the most pleasure and the least pain and difficulty and that our path and our unfolding is to gradually be able to really open the windows and the doors to let life, to let all sentient beings visit, just to to not hold off. And yet we can't do it all at once. We don't always have the the space and the balance and the ease and the care. We're sometimes too tight. It's too difficult. Some years ago, uh, a woman that I was friends with was who was, you know, getting into meditation found that whenever she would kind of relax and pay attention to experience, she'd start getting flooded by memories of trauma. She had been very badly sexually abused, and she'd just get flooded again and again. And so um, many of us encouraged her not to do this kind of meditation. And what she did was she found her own way, and what she found worked for her was when she would sit down and get quiet, she would bring to mind her allies. You know, the people in her life that absolutely were her beloveds, that were safe and protective. And she'd visualize them surrounding her, and she'd visualize them absolutely sending in all the love in the world. And she would touch herself, this was part of her practice, and let her own touch be the sense of receiving from all these allies. And that's all she did, and she did it for three or four years. And in real life, she had allies that she would sit with in a circle, too, like many people do in the Kalyanamita or whatever, uh, other circles of spiritual friends. 
but this was her meditation, just to summons her allies. And, and I always think of that because um, it's sometimes not, we're not ready just to open the doors. We really need to do what Thich Nhat Hanh described as touching peace first, doing more replenishing, touching into the place in us that feels safe. Frequently, concentrative meditation can help us. You know, just, just being with the breath helps to kind of calm and soothe, or with a mantra, or walking in nature. And we each find our ways to do that. So the idea is that we need to have the wisdom to be able to replenish our humor, our perspective, our balance, but then to have the intent, when we can, to open the doors, to open the windows. It takes a lot of patience. You know, we want to be there. We have a, an ideal of being able to be very free and very available to life. So it takes a lot of patience with our own pace. This is from Zorba the Greek. I remember one morning when I discovered a cocoon in the bark of a tree. Just as the butterfly was making a hole in its case and preparing to come out, I waited a while, but it was too long appearing and I was impatient. I bent over it and breathed on it to warm it. I warmed it as quickly as I could and the miracle began to happen before my eyes faster than life. The case opened. The butterfly started slowly crawling out, and I shall never forget my horror when I saw how its wings were folded back and crumpled. The wretched butterfly tried with its whole trembling body to unfold them. Bending over it, I tried to help it with my breath in vain. It needed to be hatched out patiently, and the unfolding of the wings needed to be a gradual process in the sun. Now it was too late. My breath had forced the butterfly to appear, all crumpled before its time. It struggled desperately, and a few seconds later died in the palm of my hand. That little body is, I do believe, the greatest weight I have on my conscience. For I realize today that it is a mortal sin to violate the greatest laws of nature. We should not hurry, we should not be impatient, but we should confidently obey the eternal rhythm. So can we have the patience to care about our beings in that way, to allow our natural rhythm, and the courage to be with whatever that is? And it takes courage. It's not always so easy. This courage to be with is another word for compassion. You know, courage means greatness of heart. And compassion, being with, having that greatness of heart that we're willing to be with life, be with what arises. So as I mentioned earlier, one wing of this facing our lives is this clear seeing, is recognizing, is opening to. And the other wing, compassion, this wholehearted way of being with, of touching with love what arises. our whole being naturally awakens in that container of caring presence. We see it. The more we feel a sense of metta or love or care, 
the more there's a natural unfolding and revealing of what's true. The two wings are totally interrelated. The more we see, the more what we see is connectedness. We open into love. The more we love, the more we're opened and able to see clearly what's happening. They're, they're totally interrelated. But the Buddha, when he taught the metta meditation, described the power of intentionally cultivating the heart. You know, many of you probably are aware of the um, most classic story of the metta meditation, which is that the Buddha sent out a bunch of monks into the forest to meditate. And the forests were filled with all sorts of wild spirits, and the wild spirits totally scared the monks to pieces. I mean, they, went, they were freaked out. There were shrieks and howls and this and that. The tree spirits made all sorts of grotesque movements. And so the monks went running back to the Buddha saying, please, please, another forest or no forest at all. And he, and he said, no, go back to this one, but go back and practice loving kindness. And the loving <coughs> kindness will protect you. And so they did return, as, as he suggested, and practice. And the spirits were so touched by the loving energy that was pervading the woods that not only did they not bother them, but they offered to be of service to the monks in whatever way they could. So what a lovely opening story for the introduction of loving kindness to the monks. (coughs) It's an expression of our natural uncontracted being. And when we open in that way, there's room in our hearts for whatever we need to be with, for whatever fear, for whatever grief, This is our refuge in a very deep way, this cultivation of the heart. There are many, many ways, and I mentioned this afternoon, a few in terms of awakening the heart. The tradition or classic practice is that of offering blessings to ourselves, to each other, to all of life. And in the moment of offering a blessing, we connect. And the connection is that's what we cherish. There's offering blessings with our words. There's visualizations, imagining ourselves and other beings, just the way that woman did that I described, (coughs) being surrounded and held by love. There's chanting. There's invocation. We can arouse and awaken our hearts in a devotional way by bringing to mind beings that inspire us. They might be kind of vague, energetic senses of beings or an actual living or once living person, it doesn't matter. There are so many ways and they all have to do with reconnecting with the natural care in our own hearts. I love this story about the Dalai Lama who was approached by a woman who was very, very frightened. And she, you know, she said that she was just too scared to meditate. And he said, don't. He said, just put your head in the Buddha's lap. That can be our practice, that simple, just learning to allow ourselves to feel held by nature and by life and by each other. Because we contract so much, because we are so reflexive about putting ourselves down, putting each other down, one of the most powerful practices of cultivating the heart is that of forgiveness. Forgiveness means to 
be willing to feel the pain that we've been pushing away. To not forgive means that we're unwilling to feel the pain (coughs) that's there. So there's a quality of including what has been pushed away. I've said many times in Tuesday nights that forgiveness has nothing to do with condoning. You can set up all the boundaries you need to on the physical plane, never see somebody again, be absolutely resolved to not let something happen again. But to forgive means not to push someone out of our hearts, not to push our own beings out of our hearts. The truth is that when we do, even though it seems like we're avoiding pain, that armor keeps us stuck in our suffering. It keeps us from living fully. So forgiving starts usually with forgiving the pain in our own beings. And that too can be quite a powerful practice. Just to sit and when something's difficult, just say, this is forgiven, this is forgiven. Just those words. Forgiving means to open to our buried pain. There's a story, um, this is from Offerings at the Wall, uh, from the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Collection about forgiveness. It goes like this. It comes with a picture of a Vietnamese man with his daughter, which if any of you want to see, I'll leave here. Dear Sir, for 22 years I have carried your picture in my wallet. I was only 18 years old that day that we faced one another on that trail in Chao Lai, Vietnam. Why you didn't take my life, I'll never know. You stared at me for so long, armed with your AK-47, and yet you did not shoot. Forgive me for taking your life. I was reacting just the way I was trained, to kill VC. So many times over the years I've stared at your picture and your daughter, I suspect. Each time my heart and guts would burn with the pain of guilt. I have two daughters myself now. I perceive you as a brave soldier defending his homeland. Above all else, I can now respect the importance that life held for you. I suppose that is why I'm able to be here today. It is time for me to continue the life process and release my pain and guilt. Forgive me, sir. So we release our pain We let it come, we let it go by feeling it, by forgiving it, by asking for forgiveness. It's really the same thing. It's opening to what's there, letting it be, feeling it fully. Any time we let go of our armor, any time we feel what's there, whether it's pain or whether it's pleasure, is a moment of arousing bodhicitta, of awakening the heart-mind. We armor against pleasure, too. Do you know what I mean? It's against intensity. We don't armor discriminately. It's not like we can say, I'm angry at this person and feel that anger and then a minute or two later feel soft and open towards a different person. Anger is anger in our body and it just is there and it stops the care from from being felt. The care is there too. We just don't have access. (coughs) We all have forgiving to do. We all have armored ourselves. We've also protected ourselves from feeling fully the joys. It's like there's some quality of, of being timid about just bearing our chest to life, just feeling it all. 
bodhicitta, awakening happens in all sorts of moments. Any moment we let ourselves care some, you know, whether it's being out in nature and being just moved and touched by the, the sunset on the mountains or by watching little creatures crawling around or moved by someone else in their sorrow or their joy or by music by anything whether it's sorrow or joy anytime we let ourselves feel it be moved that's when bodhicitta is aroused is awakened it's a really brave thing to come to a retreat because it's the same thing as saying I'm willing to be with this intensity not that it's intense every moment sometimes it might be sleepy and blurry and dull but it's stuff and it's stuff that's real and that we're called on to be with and it's our habit not to be even for a few moments it's difficult to really really just sit down in our lives There's no other way, though. There's no other way to becoming whole, to being intimate with our own beings, with each other, with the life around us, than learning to not run away, learning to stay here, learning to touch what's here. Pema Chodron talks about how we're not trying to transcend the joys and sorrows, the pain, in any way. There's sometimes this image of climbing a mountain and getting higher than and bigger than it all. And she says it's kind of the opposite. Take an inverted mountain and we're going down into the center of it, you know, and feeling it. And here's what she says. I love it. We jump into it. We slide into it. We tiptoe into it. We move toward it however we can. With us move millions of others, our companions in awakening, our sangha. At the bottom we discover water, the healing water of bodhicitta. At the bottom we discover water, the healing water of bodhicitta. Right down there in the thick of things, we discover the love that will not die. That's real love. That's the unconditional friendliness and care that really is when our heart is free. It's a love that comes through being with it all not pulling away. One of the great mantras, Om Mani Padme Hum, that as we awaken, as we recognize and see and touch this life, the heart opens. The jewel is in the lotus. The lotus is awakening. We discover compassion. But it's not from pulling away, from closing our eyes or resisting. It's from really being with our lives. As I mentioned last night, that quality of living wholeheartedly. I know in my uh, practice in psychotherapy and with students everywhere, the real despair or depression comes from feeling a sense of lost moments, of having been lost in smallness and that life's passing by, not having, not having lived the moments fully. And and I think this is what brings us. I think each of us really has a very deep, intuitive sense of who we are and how full it can be and wanting to drop into that. And the pathway in is just right now, just this moment, letting this moment matter, having the courage to be here.
So I'd like to end with a poem that's become a favorite for many people, which is called The Invitation. So just meditate with this one. It's by Araya Mountain Dreamer. It doesn't interest me what you do for a living. I want to know what you ache for. And if you dare to dream of meeting your heart's longing. It doesn't interest me how old you are. I want to know if you will risk looking like a fool for love, for your dreams, for the adventure of being alive. It doesn't interest me what planets are squaring your moon. I want to know if you have been if you have touched the center of your sorrow. If you have been opened by life's betrayals, or have you become shriveled and closed from fear of further pain? I want to know if you can sit with pain, mine or your own, without moving to hide it or fade it or fix it. I want to know if you can be with joy, mine or your own. If you can dance with wildness and let the ecstasy fill you to the tips of your fingers and toes without cautioning us to be careful be realistic, are to remember the limitations of being human. It doesn't interest me if the story you are telling me is true. I want to know if you can disappoint another to be true to yourself, if you can bear the accusation of betrayal and not betray your own soul, if you can be faithful and therefore be trustworthy. I want to know if you can see beauty even when it is not present every day, and if you can, source your own life from its presence. I want to know if you can live with failure, yours and mine, and still stand on the edge of the lake and shout to the silver of the full moon, yes. I want to know if you will stand in the center of the fire with me and not shrink back. I want to know if you can be alone with yourself and if you truly like the company you keep in the empty moments. We'll take a few minutes just to sit quietly. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.